uh, I have a lot to try to cover in the next 25 minutes. So I'm going to encourage you not to look at your watches for a while. So we've been in this series called Common Threads, where we're diving into these themes that run from Genesis to Revelation, so that when we come across these themes in Scripture as we read, let me just pause for a second there and make sure that we understand sometimes you have to say the things that you think everyone already knows. As followers of Jesus, Scripture is important to us. We understand it as God's revelation to us about himself and the way that he works with his people. And so reading the Bible daily is what we do. It's just what we do. It's who we are, right? So that being said, as we read scripture and we encounter these themes, we'll be able to recognize these and put them in context of the bigger story of scripture that God uh, has revealed to us. So we've gone through who we are uh, as people made in the image of God. That's where we started. And what that means that we're made in God's image. Then as people made in the image of God, what it looks like to have a healthy rhythm of work and rest. Then we talked about as people who are made in the image of God with a healthy image of work and rest, what does it look like to encounter the presence of God in his temple? And so we, we walked through how the temple was a physical place and now it's, now it's inside of us. And so we're made in the image of God healthy rhythm of work and rest. We are, we are the dwelling place of God. And then last week we talked about if we're going to be the dwelling place of God, we had better be holy. So God made us holy so that we could be his dwelling place. What does it look like to live as people who have been made holy by God? And today we're gonna to talk about exile. What does it mean to be a people who uh, live in a world that is not our home? So uh, what, what, what is home for you? What, what, how would you define home? Uh, for many of us, home is, is house. We use those words almost synonymously most of the time, even though house is a concrete, tangible thing, and home is more of a conceptual thing. But I think we, we kind of conflate those and we put those together because we want our house to be our home. And home is essentially the place where we find safety, belonging, and purpose, okay? That we, we need a place as human beings, we are built with this need for a place where we can feel safe, protected from anything that would try to hurt us or just from the elements or whatever that is. We need a place where we feel like we belong. We are accepted and loved and valued for who we are. And we need a place where we can contribute to making things better for the people around us. So a purpose. So home is where we find safety, belonging, and purpose, a place to, to contribute. So where's, where's home for you? So whenever people ask me, where's home for you, I get real confused because I don't know. <laughs> uh, I have, uh, I tried to write all this down because it's hard to remember. I've lived in eight different states. I've moved across state lines 13 times. Um, I've occupied for at least three months, I've occupied 26 different houses. And as, uh, as of June 2022, um, I will have lived here in Cicero for seven years. It's the longest I've ever lived anywhere. And it's already the longest we've ever been in one house, the house that we live in now um, over by the cemetery, the, the graveyard house. That's, we've, we've lived there longer than I've ever lived anywhere in my life. Um, so home for me is not so much connected to a house or a geographic place. Whereas for my wife, it's very different. She grew up basically in the same house from the time she was born until she went to college Right? And her parents lived there, you know, through her college years. Uh, so for her, home is kind of, we, we say, where's home for you? She thinks of this house in, in Portland, Indiana on Main Street. For me, when I think of home, it's, it's more about the, the people, the, the, the people that make me feel safe 
that make me feel like I belong and that make me feel like I have a purpose and a place to contribute. And so uh, we, we define this differently. But what I, th- I think is, is, is going on in the hearts of most human beings is we want the world to be that place. We want the world to be a place where everyone feels safe, everyone belongs, and everyone can contribute to making things better for others. Is the world that place? No, no. You don't have to get very far reading the news uh, to figure out the world is not safe for everyone, right? That not everyone belongs or has acceptance where, where they are. And not everyone uh, either is contributing or feels like they have a way to contribute to making things better for others. The world is not that place. But as human beings, here's, here's what we do. We, we, we kind of buy in as, as humanity, we buy into really what, what is a lie from our enemy is, is that we can make the world our home. We can make the world a place where everyone is safe, where everyone is accepted, and where everyone can contribute. That's what we call government. Government is human beings' effort to try to create this society where everyone is safe, everyone belongs, and everyone contributes, right? That's, that's what human governments do. How, how, what's our track record, like with human governments, what's our track record with creating societies where everyone is safe, everyone belongs, and everyone contributes? We're O for a million, <laughs> We haven't done it yet. We haven't figured it out yet. There's never been a government that has created a society that where everyone is safe, everyone belongs, and uh, everyone contributes. Even, even the United States, even in our earliest days, the United States, you can say this, of our country. And it's not because our, there's something like wrong with our system of government. It's not, it's not because there's something we just haven't figured out yet. It's because we're human beings. And whenever you give human beings some power, some people are going to use that power in ways that are harmful, in ways that either take away safety, take away belonging, or take away the opportunity for everyone to contribute. Human beings are just going to do that. Not, not every human being, but, but when you give human beings power, and that's what government is all about, is giving certain human beings power, because you can't make changes unless you have some power and authority. So we have to give some people power. And when we do that, we just open up the door for human greed and selfishness and pride and insecurity and fear to come in and that power gets leveraged in ways that take away safety, belonging, or purpose for people. So the reality is we all live in a world that is not home. It doesn't feel like home. And this creates kind of some some issues for us, especially as Christians. When we find ourselves feeling like we're not at home in the world. What does that mean for us as Christians? Here's how C.S. Lewis uh, would describe that. He says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy. So if we find ourselves with a desire that we need a place of safety, belonging, and purpose, and nothing in this world can satisfy, he would say, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world, right? So as Christians, we kind of go, yeah, that's right. I don't feel at home in this world, Therefore, I am made for another world. So what, what does that even mean? What does it mean that there's another place where I will find a home someday? How, how do we think about what's coming in the future? How do we think about where we are right now? So this concept is tied very closely to the biblical theme of exile. 
So we're gonna take some time. We're gonna walk through the biblical theme of exile from Genesis to Revelation. Then we're gonna kind of uh, discover what this means for us as followers of Jesus here today in February 2022. Are you ready? Let's do it anyway. Genesis chapter three. If you have a Bible, please open to Genesis chapter three. Uh, otherwise, follow along on the screen. Every, every theme starts in Genesis. <laughs> that's, that's why it's called Genesis. Genesis means the beginning. So this is the beginning of every theme that God is gonna introduce throughout scripture. And right here in Genesis chapter three, we find the theme of exile. So Adam and Eve are in the garden. They've been told, don't eat the fruit of this tree. You can eat everything else. Just don't eat the fruit of this tree. And uh, when they choose to do so, what they're doing is, is rejecting God's authority over their lives and rejecting God's position as the only one who gets to decide what's good and bad, right? They're saying, we want to decide good and bad for ourselves. We want to run our own lives. That's what they do. As soon as they do this, then there are some consequences. There's a curse that comes on the land and a curse that comes on the serpent. And the people are going to be given a consequence as well. Let's read about that in verse 21. So the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So God, in his wisdom, knows if human beings are gonna rule themselves, if human beings are gonna decide for themselves what's right and wrong, we know they're gonna screw that up. So the idea of them living forever is a bad idea, right? If, if they're going to do a bad job of deciding what's right and wrong, then they probably shouldn't be allowed to live forever. We can do a lot of damage just in the limited time that we have, the 80, 90, 100 years that we have. Imagine if we lived forever, how much damage we could do as human beings. So God says, this is not gonna work. So they can't uh, eat from the tree of life anymore. Verse 23, so the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So God exiles Adam and Eve from the garden. And the garden, remember, the garden is this place where it was the abundance of God and everything they needed was provided and God was present with them there and, and everything was good as long as they let God be the one to decide what's right and wrong. And as soon as they take that power for themselves, they know we're gonna decide, we're gonna decide what's right and wrong for ourselves, then they are exiled from the garden because of their disobedience and they can no longer take from the tree of life. So they're cut off from the presence of God and from eternal life, which are two things that people were made for were made for. So this is, this is a theme that we'll see. You can, it shows up again in the next chapter when uh, the sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, offer sacrifices. Cain's is rejected. Abel's is accepted. Cain gets upset about this, kills his brother. And when God confronts Cain about murdering his brother, what is the consequence for Cain? God exiles him, again, from his people. He sends him off on his own. Right? So we'll see this. We're going to show a couple of these graphics to kind of help us visualize this. But we'll see this, that Eden was the place where we were made for to experience the presence of God and eternal life, right? Sin comes along and it puts us in a different place. We are no longer in the place as, hu as human beings, as humanity as a whole. We are no longer in the place where we're experiencing the presence of God and eternal life. Therefore, we are in exile. And ever since then, Ever since human beings were first exiled from the presence of God and from eternal life, we have been, we have been longing for a way back. We have been looking. This is, this is why we create governments and societies is we're looking to recreate Eden. We're trying to recreate 
what God made and, and then exiled us from because of our disobedience. We're, and we're saying like, we, we've got to figure this out for ourselves. This is what the Tower of Babel was kind of about. The Tower of Babel was like, can we recreate this place where we're in the presence of God and we get eternal life, but we also still want to hold on to this authority to decide right and wrong from ourselves. So that's, that's why the Tower of Babel was flawed from the beginning is because they wanted both. We, we want God's presence and we want eternal life, but we are not gonna let go. We're not gonna let go of our autonomy, our authority to decide for ourselves and rule ourselves. And so that's why that, that was a problem. So uh, as we go through the history of um, the people of God, these are, Abraham is called to be in a covenant with God where God says, we're gonna start rebuilding this. We're gonna start rebuilding this relationship between God and humans. And Abraham's descendants um, are slaves in Egypt. They get rescued. And here's what God promises Abraham from the very, very beginning. He says, I am going to give you a land, right? We call it the promised land. I'm gonna give you a land. And here's why this is significant. Because the way that God painted the picture of the promised land for the Israelites and for Abraham was, it is going to be your home. It is going to be a place for my people to find safety, belonging, and purpose. You are going to be safe from your enemies. I'm going to protect you. You are going to be accepted as my people, and you're going to contribute to making not only your own community, but even the people around you better, right? So that's what the promised land was all about. So they're looking forward to this for hundreds of years, and they finally get there when Joshua takes them in, and they they take possession of the promised land and this is their home. This is their place where, where they're as close to Eden as humanity has ever been. God's presence is with them in the tabernacle. They are safe from their enemies and they disobey. Why? Because they, they can't let go of this desire to rule themselves and human beings refuse to submit and do what God says is best, to trust that his way is best, and they do their, their own thing. And so what happens? Well, as we can see from the pattern uh, set in Genesis 3 and 4, they're going to be exiled. We're not surprised when the Israelites are exiled from the promised land, um, you, you know, hundreds of years down the road, because we, we saw this pattern established in Genesis chapter 3. When you disobey and you choose your own way, you get exiled from the presence of God and from eternal life. So uh, 2 Kings chapter 17 reports the deportation of the Israelites by the Assyrians and explains that God allowed and caused this to happen because of their willful rejection of his authority. In other words, they, they had given themselves over to idolatry. And after repeated warnings to turn away from idolatry, they persisted. And so they are conquered and exiled. So that was the northern kingdom. The Israelites were deported by the Assyrians. And then 150 years or so later, the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered by the Babylonians and they were exiled as well. All right, so what do they, what do, they do in exile? We'll kind of circle back to that. They eventually get released. They go back home to the promised land, but it's just not the way it was before. It's, it's not a place of safety anymore. Um, they, they, they don't have any power, so they can't protect themselves from their enemies. It's not a place where they feel, they feel loved and chosen and selected by God because the temple has been destroyed and his presence 
uh, doesn't seem to be there. It's just, not, it's just not what it used to be. And so for hundreds of years, the people are looking for a way back. We want a way back to the way things were. And the way they thought about it, the golden age was under David. When David had, had kind of conquered all of, of the enemies of Israel and there was this time of peace, they kind of look back and they say, that was home. That was as close to Eden as we've ever been. How are we gonna get back there? And that's why they start to look forward to the Messiah. The Messiah is the one who's gonna come and take us home. He's going to make this place our home again. He's going to drive out our enemies. We're going to be God's special people again. And that's why when Jesus comes along, they're looking for a Messiah that's different. We're going to cover that next week. So that's a teaser for next week. So, but Jesus does come. And when Jesus comes, he begins to paint this picture of home, of of this place of safety and, and, and belonging and purpose, but he calls it the kingdom of God. He doesn't call it the promise. They were not going back or going forward. We're going into the kingdom of God. That's gonna be this place. And Jesus says in John chapter 14, he says, I am the way. I'm the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. What's significant about coming to the Father? The Father is home, right? Isn't that how you think of home? Like, for, for many of us, it's where, well, it's where, dad, it's where dad is, right? And so Jesus says, where your father is, that's your home. I am the way home. I am the way home. That's why I think it's so beautiful when the early church kind of starts to spread and they're spreading this message that Jesus died and rose from the dead, conquered sin and death, that people are invited into the kingdom of God, the home where um, we, we can find safety and belonging and purpose. And you know what they were called? What was this movement called of people spreading the gospel and people coming to Christ? It was called the way. The people were called followers of the way. Before they were ever called Christians, they were called the way. It, it just shows up six times in the book of Acts. It refers to um, Christianity as the way. Christianity actually wasn't a name that Christians came up for for themselves. They were called that by other people. It's kind of a way to make fun of them because it just means little Christ. Christian means little Christ. And it was kind of the Romans and Greeks were kind of uh, making fun of these people and because they, oh, they, they think they're little Jesuses. They think they're little Christs running around. That's, that's how they called them. And Peter goes on to tell them, this is a tangent, by the way, <laughs> not in my notes. Peter goes on to tell them later, hey, you should wear the name Christian with honor. Everyone else means it as an insult. Just embrace it. Take it as an honor. And so that's why we are called Christians today. But they originally called themselves the way and followers of the way because they were on the way home. Christians were people who were on the way back home to this place of God. So what we see in our next um, graphic is that um, as we live in exile... If we can show those next uh, circle graphics up there. about There you go. Um, we're stuck in, in the circle of exile because of disobedience. Jesus comes along. He pays for our sin. He dies uh, for our sins. So our sins, the thing that puts us in exile has been dealt with, and he invites us in to the kingdom of heaven. And so we say, great. Then someday we get to be in the kingdom of heaven. You know, that's, that's how we think about death. When we die, we're kind of going from, you know, the kingdom of the earth to the kingdom of heaven. But that's not actually how Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. In fact, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is here. Like there is a way for you to be home in the kingdom of heaven now. You don't have to wait until you die. You, you get to participate in eternal life. So if, if, if coming out of exile is a restoration to Eden, which is the presence of God and access to eternal life, right? So the kingdom of heaven is the presence of God and access to eternal life. Jesus says, you can, you can start that right now. 
You don't have to wait till you die. You can start that right now. And he begins to show people what it looks like to um, enter into the kingdom of God while it is being restored. It's in the process of being restored and God's rule and reign coming absolute. So let's look at the next one. This is kind of what it looks like now. Um, We live in the world, which is the, the gray circle. We're invited into the kingdom of heaven through faith in Christ. And so we find ourselves in this middle place. And this is, this is what we call the church. The church is this middle place where we're in, we're still in the world. We're still, you know, we still live here, but we're also a part of the kingdom of heaven, the place where God is present and we find safety from our enemy. And we find belonging because we're united by the blood of Christ. And we find purpose a way to contribute and use our gifts to be a blessing not only to our own community, but to the people all around us. The church is home. That's what it's intended to be. So how do we live as people who are, now we're not exiled from the presence of God. If you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're an exile living in the world that is not your home. So scripture is full of language. The New Testament is full of language about what, what does it mean? Uh, what are the expectations of people who are living in exile? And so there are two uh, main options that seem obvious when you're living in exile. Two main options that seem obvious. One is compromise. Compromise would say, um, well, if you can't beat them, join them. I mean, we're, and when you're in exile, you don't have the power. When you're in exile, you're, you're not in charge. You're not making the rules. You're not the majority when you're in exile, right? So you just kind of have to go along to get along, right? You just, you just kind of say, well, we're, we're stuck here. We might as well, you know, win in Rome. What is the phrase? Win in Rome? You do as the Romans, right? So if you're stuck in the world, just, just go ahead and, and be like everybody else. Be like, be like the world. That's one option. The other option is to kind of take a, a, a violent revolt posture. Like, hey, we're, we're, so, we're so not like the world that we're going to violently oppose anything that the world tries to bring into the church or even anything outside of the church that's in the world that we disagree with. We're going after it, like violently to overcome. The fascinating thing is Jesus, when he came as the Messiah, he had both of those options in front of him and he chose neither. He did not compromise and he did not violently revolt. So what what does it look like for us to live in exile? Well, first of all, don't compromise. Compromise is not an option for disciples of Jesus. We are not going to let go of our faith in God. We're not gonna let go of the things that matter. We're not gonna, we're not gonna sacrifice the truth that we stand on. We're not, we're not gonna violate the principles that Jesus laid out for us just because that's what the world does. So uh, the, the Jews who were exiled into Babylon kind of wrestled with this when they were, they were stuck in Babylon. They knew it was gonna be decades that they were gonna be stuck there. And so many people just got pretty comfortable. They, they, they built homes there. They, they made money. Um, they became influential even in the Babylonian community. But in order to kind of push back against this uh, and, and, and establish their identity, they didn't want to lose their identity as the people of God. Many people think that this is when synagogues started. You're, you're familiar with the idea of a synagogue? It's like a, it's like a Jewish church, right? Okay, we think of church and a synagogue is like a Jewish church. They were very common in Jesus's day. You know, Jesus went to the synagogue every, every Sabbath. Many people think that it was during the exile, the time in exile in Babylon, that synagogues became established because the Jews were trying to maintain their sense of identity 
within this Babylonian culture. This is also when um, the, the idea of the study of their genealogies really became important to the Jews, where they were, their ability to, to connect themselves to their ancestors from the past because they didn't want to lose their sense of identity. So how do we, as Christians, maintain our sense of identity while we live in the world? Here's how Peter would say it in 1 Peter chapter 2. He would say, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. So Peter, is, he's talking to all these Christians that are scattered all over the Greek and Roman world, and, and he's, he's encouraging them, listen, you're not in power, you are not the majority, you don't get to make the rules, here's what you should do. As foreigners and exiles, abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter's like, you're stuck there. You don't have power. You don't have authority. But don't cave in. Don't compromise. Don't just become like everybody else. Like every human is, is gonna fight these, these sinful desires. But in the world, what's really common is just to kind of give into that. We're not gonna give into that. We're, we're gonna fight, that's our real enemy. The enemy is not the, the people of the world who are not in Christ. Those, those people are not our enemy. The enemy is Satan. And how, we've, how we go to battle against Satan is we wage war against our sinful desires. So we have to train ourselves as Christians today to differentiate between the world and the kingdom of God. If we're gonna be stuck in this place in the middle as the church where we're, we're exiles in the world, we're part of the kingdom of God, but, but, but we're, kind of, we're kind of here we have to be able to differentiate between the things of the world and the things of the kingdom. So let me just give you an example of that. In, in the world, the way, that, the way that people think about their body um, is, is different than the way that, that God teaches us we should think about our body. And this is connected to some of the things we've talked about, created in the image of God, we are the temple of God, we are holy, right? So in the world, the, the idea is if your body wants it, it's a good thing. If, if, you're, if you have a desire to do something, to eat something, like if you, know, if, if you have a desire for food, eat. If, you, if you're angry, punch something. Um, if you have you know, sexual desire, satisfy that in whatever way seems best to you. That's, that's the worldly way. When it comes to our flesh and our, our physical desires, just, just go for it. Do, do whatever seems right to satisfy that desire. But in the kingdom of God, we understand that we are made in the God's image, that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, and therefore we are free to say no to those desires. We're free to say no. The world would say freedom is whatever you feel like doing, do it. That's probably what's best. Anyone who's ever raised a three-year-old knows that's insane, right? You can't just tell a three-year-old, hey, whatever you feel like doing, knock yourself out. They're not gonna survive. I mean, they literally will get themselves killed, won't they? Because they don't know, they don't know. And God is like, all right, I love you guys, but you're kind of like three-year-olds sometimes. And so here's the rule. Like, just because you feel like doing it, just because you desire to do it, doesn't mean it's a good thing. And so what the New Testament writers would call slavery is you, when you just satisfy your, your desires, when you say, man, if, if I really want this, I should go after it, Paul would say, that's slavery. That's slavery to your sinful desires. Do you wanna know what freedom is? Freedom is the ability to say, I desire this, but I am free to say no. I'm free to say no. I, I desire to eat, I am free to say no. That's what fasting is all about. That's why fasting is such a foundational spiritual practice. 
is, it, is we're practicing this freedom of saying no to a physical desire. We're practicing the freedom of saying no to a physical desire. That's what fasting is all about. That, that's why uh, the, what, what Christians would consider being um, sexually moral, like we're gonna, we're gonna be not sexually immoral, we're gonna be sexually moral. What that looks like is so different from the world is because we have the freedom to say no. We have the freedom to say no to what our body wants because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit and we're free to say no. So that's just an example of what it looks like for us to be able to differentiate between the way of the world and the way of the kingdom so we don't compromise, but we live loyal to God in the middle. Okay, so we're not gonna compromise. We are not going to revolt. When Jesus came along, um, what people wanted was a Messiah who was gonna be a conquering king, and Jesus came as a suffering servant, and it did not make sense to them because it wasn't because he couldn't have conquered. Listen, friends, this, this is, I know that there are, there's kind of this idea out there that Christians need to fight to protect Christianity, take up arms and violent you know, opposition. That is so unlike Jesus. Jesus had the power. He absolutely had the physical, like he could have brought to bear legions of angels and wiped Rome out. And if Rome wasn't an evil empire, I don't know what was. And he did not choose that way. He did not revolt. I think this is significant for us. And I think that when we put ourselves in a place where we think there's only two options, compromise or violent opposition, then we've put, we put ourselves in a box. When Martin Luther King Jr. came along in the human, human rights movement and uh, African-Americans who were suffering under, under Jim Crow laws for, for, for years, decades, they thought that their options were give in or fight. And what did Martin Luther King Jr. do? There's a third way. There's a third way. And they began nonviolent protest and, and changed the, the course of the, the laws in our country and our history because they found a third way. And as followers of Jesus, this is what we're supposed to do. We, we, don't, we don't put ourselves in a box and say, well, we either have to give in or we have to fight back. The people of the world are not our enemy. Our enemy is Satan. And what we are called to is to live in this space in the middle Here's how Jeremiah paints it. So Jeremiah was a prophet during uh, the Babylonians came in, conquered Judah and began carting people off to exile in Babylon. God uh, comes to Jeremiah. He says, I'm gonna dictate this letter. I want, you to, I want you to write down what I say and send this letter to the people who are in exile. We're gonna, we're gonna talk to them about how to live in exile. This is what Jeremiah 29 is all about. So in Jeremiah 29, here's the words that God sends through Jeremiah to the exiles this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile. First of all, he says, don't blame Babylon. This was my choice because of your disobedience and your idolatry, right? So I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they, they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number and do not decrease also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So God says, don't, don't, you don't have to compromise, but I want you to seek the good of the people that carried you off in exile. I want you to, I want you to be a blessing to the people that you think are your enemy. So instead of trying to destroy their society, I want you to try to make it better. Man, if this is not the call for a church in a community where we look around and we go, man, 
We're like, we're, we're less and less the majority all the time. And, and we find ourselves with less and less authority and power. What are we supposed to do? Fight to get our authority and power back? Or are we supposed to seek the good of our community? We're supposed to be a blessing to the people around us. This is the call from Jeremiah all the way to, to 2 Peter. Be a blessing. Be a blessing and remain loyal to God. We're, we're not gonna compromise. We're gonna remain loyal. This is exactly what Daniel did when Daniel gets carried off into exile in Babylon and he has the meat put in front of him that was sacrificed to idols. He says, nope, I'm not, I'm not eating that. I'm not compromising. But neither did he fight back. He didn't go on a hunger strike and, and, and kill himself over it. He said, let's, let's figure something else out. I'll just eat the vegetables. He remained loyal, but he did not violently oppose. This is what Jesus does when he says, hey, you know, you're supposed to pay your taxes, right? We're not, you're not gonna worship Caesar. Caesar's not God. Don't worship Caesar, but pay your taxes. That's, that's Jesus saying, you are, you are in this place where you're, this is, world is not your home, but we're gonna seek the good of the place where we are. So one of the things we have to make sure we remember is that exile doesn't last forever. Yes, this world is not our home, but it's not always gonna be like this. God has a plan and he points us to this future hope and he does it, he does it for uh, the people uh, in exile in Babylon. Here's what God says to them at the end of this letter in Jeremiah 29. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Now listen, that did not happen in the Old Testament. They, they weren't brought back from all of the places where they had been scattered. Some came back, but not all. So this prophecy has not yet been fulfilled. Not yet. But John in Revelation sees a picture of it. Here's, here's what John sees in Revelation chapter 7. He says, after this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne, before the lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. John says, I see it. I see it coming. There's coming a time when all of God's people are gonna be gathered together and we will finally be home. We'll finally be home. We'll finally be in that place where all all of humanity is under the authority and rule and reign of God. That's, that's, that's the kingdom of God. When God, God's authority is complete and absolute. We're not there yet. Right now, the church is our home. The church is our place where we should be finding safety and belonging and a place to contribute. Sadly, the church has not always been that for all people. We have to, we have to accept that. We have to admit that the church has made mistakes. The church has created environments that weren't safe for everyone, that weren't accepting of everyone, and that didn't give everyone a chance to contribute. We're, we're gonna push back against that. We're, we're gonna create a church that is home for the followers of Jesus. We're not gonna compromise, but we are gonna be a blessing to the world around us. That's what it means to live in exile. That's what we mean when we say, you are salt and light. We're called to preserve what's good and be a blessing and to push back darkness and not compromise with it in a way that draws people and says, hey, everyone is looking for home. Everyone is looking for this place. Maybe Jesus is the way. Maybe Jesus really is the way home. 
Would you stand? We're gonna pray as we close out. I just wanna invite you to consider what does it mean for you to live as an exile in this world? Are you able to differentiate between the things of the world and the kingdom of God? And do you find in Christ the freedom to say no? Say no to compromise and say yes to being a blessing to the world around us. Let's just pray through this together. Father, thank you so much for being with us in exile. You didn't leave us here alone and you're not without power and authority to do things. And you have chosen to do the things that you wanna do through your church. God, we're so grateful for that. It's, it's an incredible privilege to be a part of what you're doing in the world. But it is confusing for us sometimes to understand what it means that this world is not our home and how we're supposed to live here with that truth in our minds. So I pray that you would put it on our hearts to make sure that we're not compromising in any way, but also we are seeking to be a blessing to the, the people around us. And we do this, Father, faithfully until you send Jesus back and you take us all home forever. We look forward to that day. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. Um, I pray that God blesses you as you go throughout your day. Be salt and light in a world that desperately needs the hope of Jesus.